Hello, you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Wordwell Publications have just issued a fantastic new book. It's called Materialising Power, The Archaeology of the Black Pig's Dyke in County Monaghan by Colleen O'Driscoll and Aidan Walsh. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Colleen, Aidan and Shirley Clerkin, the Monaghan County Council Heritage Officer as well, to have a discussion about the Black Pig's Dyke, prehistoric boundaries and what this project can tell us about life in the past. So you're all very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Thanks a million for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks a million. Uh, so I, I, th I suppose we might start with yourself, Colleen, and get a bit of an overview of the site itself. Where and what exactly is the Black Pig's Dyke and what counties does it traverse? Where does it begin and end? That sort of thing. Could you give us a bit of a sense of the monument? Yeah, um... Black Pig's Dyke, it's a series of about, about a dozen massive prehistoric earthwork banks and, and ditches that span um, intermittently across about nine counties from west to east, to, so from Donegal to Armagh. Um, there's various folk names that have been ascribed to the, the different monuments Along that line, uh, you've got the Black Pig's Dyke, the Worm Ditch, and the Dune Claw in County Longford. And um, about 120 odd years ago, John O'Donovan, from the, the famous antiquarian from the Ordnance Survey, he looked. He, he had gone and mapped all of of these monuments in the landscape and and the name, the local folk names of the different sections of dike onto the maps and a really, really important resource. But as he was doing this, he, something obviously clicked in, in his mind and, and he said, well, okay, we've got all, we've got these dozen earthworks across Strathbannon from Donegal to Armagh. And he was the first person to come up with the idea that this was kind of a, a great wall that had something, you know, akin to the, the Antonine Wall in, that the Romans had built or um, Hadrian's Wall, obviously influenced by that sort of thing. Uh, he came up with the idea that this had been effectively a kind of great wall of, of Ulster. Then subsequently in the early 1900s, the idea really, really took off with the work of William de Visney's Kane, who, who lived in County Monaghan, and he wrote a, a number of famous papers on the Black Pig's Dyke, where he really um, solidified the ideas that, that O'Donovan had, had come up with. And, um, and he had this grand scheme of kind of shifting borders, that this was one great big continuous boundary between Ulster in the north and, and, and the rest of Ireland in the south, and that it defended Ulster from the south. And he used it various mythological and, and historical sources to, to date it to the, the second century AD um, and is very influenced also by the, by the Roman walls and so forth. So that's where the idea of the Black Pig's Dyke as a kind of continuous boundary between the North and, and the South came from. Obviously, it was very influenced by the politics of the time as well. 
And, um, and that scenario has continued right up until relatively recently. Um, it's never been really questioned by um, most archaeologists with, over the past 50 or so years w wouldn't really have um, questioned that original idea. So one of the things that we've done in the book is really we've looked very, very hard at that whole, whole idea of it being a continual boundary, a uh, defensive boundary. And that, so that's where the idea of it comes from in terms of the physical form of the earthworks. I mean, you're really dealing with something that was absolutely spectacular at the time. These are massive constructions. They are amongst the largest constructions of prehistoric Europe. And the Black Pig's Dyke in County Monaghan is 10 kilometers long, and it's formed from a, an enormous bank and ditch, uh, two ditches and two banks. And the banks are you know, around seven or eight meters wide each and, and um, the, the entire defensive zone if you want to call it of the dikes about 23 meters across so you're dealing with a, an enormous construction and the, the most impressive aspect of it in my mind anyway uh, was found by Aidan in, in his excavations at Aharay West which formed the, the core of the book back in 1982 and that was the uh, archaeological evidence that there was an enormous oak palisade that ran parallel with, I think it ran parallel with the entire length of the artwork. So you had a, you know, maybe an eight or nine kilometer long timber palisade uh, of oak. The, this seems to have stood to about three meters high and it really was an enormous construction and in the first century bc the entire uh, palisade seems to have been burnt to the ground and you know this is just must have been an extraordinary site at the time and you'd have to wonder was this some sort of act of war or something like that so um but that's the kind of scale that you're dealing with here you're looking at something that really, really monumental in scale. I mean, this is, uh, and then you've got the same kind of general scenario then with all of the other dikes as well that are being built at the same time. So it's it's very, very, very impressive what was happening at that time. And it stands out, I think, from <clears throat> everything that preceded us and you know, up, up until, I suppose, Normans came and did fortified the, the country in in, 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 uh, in their way. But um, so that's in a nutshell, I suppose, what, what the, the Black Pig Dyke is, is all about. That's really interesting. And Aidan, you know, Coley mentioned a couple of different names for the place there and they're very evocative, you know, the Black Pig's Dyke, the Worm Ditch. There must be a very rich sort of folklore and mythology about these monuments how how did uh, how does some of those stories kind of relate to the place itself well their their local explanations of an earthwork that they couldn't explain i mean this was this huge earthwork in the landscape and um, people started to imagine what they were used for and the famous schools collection of irish folklore in the 1930s 
picked up a lot of stories in County Monaghan and Cavan about the earthwork. There were two main explanations offered, I suppose. One of them was the worm ditch, that it was a that it was created by a giant ulfaced or monstrous worm or snake squirming its way across the countryside. But I think the most imaginative one is the enchanted schoolmaster story. And Fanula Williams, who's a folklorist, has published on this. And it's about the children coming home from a school each day exhausted and their parents start to ask them what's wrong. And they say, well, the schoolmaster, he's got magical powers and he's got a, he's got a book of spells. And every day he turns us into rabbits or hares. He turns himself into a hound and he chases love over the hills and dales. Uh, until the end of the day, we come back into the school and he changes us back again. And the parents are very angry about this. So they go down and they confront the schoolmaster and they say, show us your magic. So he opens his book of spells. He begins to, uh, in some form of incantation, to turn himself into a pig or a boar. Whereupon the parents seize the book of spells, and throw it on the school fire and consume it. Therefore, the master can't turn himself back into a person anymore. And in his rage, he puts his tusks into the landscape and rampages across Ireland, throwing up the black pig's dyke. So that's that's one of the folkloric tales, which they're very imaginative, and there's lots of versions and, and variations of them. Uh, but they've all been collected by the school's collection, um, and they may even be referred to by earlier collectors. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love that kind of layering of stories. As you say, when somebody can't explain a monument or something, they, they weave yeah. these tales around it. I just think that's... Uh, such a depth to it and you know is it kind of um I, I suppose there are other sites as well that are very like it in Ireland and in the UK as well do we know um many other monuments that are very similar to it in terms of period or style or, or shape or, or things like that was this a common phenomenon I, I suppose uh, in prehistoric Europe they are a form of monument that are, are found throughout much of Europe, all right. And I mean, you can go to look at Benin in, in, in Africa as well, and there's very, very similar linear earthworks uh, in that part of the world as well. So they are a, quite a widespread phenomenon. Now, what's happening in Ireland and the UK is, is slightly different to um, the rest of the world. They're tend to be the linear earthworks are larger, they're more extensive and they date from the, the late prehistoric period. So you've got in the UK, I mean, there's the most famous example, I suppose, would, would be Office Dyke, which is the great linear earthwork that extends along, more or less along the, the Welsh-English border. And that dates to, it was always thought of dated to the 8th century, but there's been some recent excavations that are suggesting that it's quite a bit older than um, previously thought. Um, they do, yeah, they, they occur throughout the UK and in Ireland. The big challenge has, has been actually figuring out how, how many of these things do we actually have. I mean, if you go onto the record of monuments and places and type in linear earthwork, about 170-odd examples turn up, but that includes all sorts of linear 
features like landscaping um, features, things like townland boundaries, that sort of stuff. So what we've done in the book is we've tried to we've tried tried to whittle that down to likely or indeed definite examples of linear earthworks that are like the Black Pig Strike uh, in County Monaghan. And there's we reckon there's about 25 or 26 examples that we can point to the Black Pig's race on the Corrin would be an, another good example. And the, the Dune Claw or the Clydoth down in County Cork and Limerick, huge artwork, 25 kilometres long, which is a really, really impressive one. Um, and so there, there's, there's a definite concentration of them up in the kind of South Ulster, North Midlands region which is the, the kind of core area of, of the Black Pig Strike. And, um, but there's a scatter of them then down around the south of the country. You've got the Rat Duff Dyke in, in County Kilkenny, just down the road from me here. And, uh, but one of the things I suppose that, that we've tried to look at in the book and, and point to is just the, the lack of excavation that's happened on these and we're very they're very very poorly understood in, in many ways so um that's one of the things with, with very very few radiocarbon dates from these sites very little idea as to how what their morphology was and, um, and their you know, overall chronology and that sort of stuff and that's kind of why Aidan's excavation in 1982 at Aharay West was, was so important because it, it, it was the first um, excavation in the Republic of a linear artwork and uh, it really kind of set, set the ball rolling for all future research on these things. So, um, so yeah, I think there's probably about, about 25 or 26 good examples that we can point to. Um, of those then, seven or eight of those that really stand out has been very, very similar to the Black Pig Strike in County Monaghan in terms of their monumentality, the sheer scale of them, the fact that they've been, they weren't just earth, earthen monuments. A lot of these the, uh, sites also had, had an awful lot of timber work attached to them as well in like Great Palisade in, in in the Monaghan example, um, you've got the the Dune of Drumsna, for example, which, which is in in uh, County Roscommon, a huge, absolutely hugely impressive monument in, in its own right. It's about thirty-five meters across at, at the base of its earthworks, and the, the earthworks there that <clears throat> cut off this really, really impressive headlands that's. Uh, and a promontory that sticks out in, into the River Shannon. And there's a whole, really, that's one of the really, really interesting sites. It seems to be, it's very, very similar to riverine promontory forts that you're getting in, in the latter part of the Iron Age in Europe. And there seems to be, there's done geophysical surveys and there's been a few excavations up there that are suggesting that the Dune of Drumsna could be something similar. So. Um, they're they're the ones that stand out. So we've kind of whittled it down from the hundred and 
70 odd linear artworks on, on their record of monuments and places to about 25 good solid examples and then there's maybe eight then that really stand out as being late prehistoric monumental linear artworks in the style of the, the Black Pig's Dyke. So Aidan, you excavated on the Black Pig's Dyke back in 1982. Could you tell us a little bit about that? How much of the feature did you excavate and what sort of things did it reveal? I was a student of archaeology in Galway and I qualified in 1970, a long time ago, and the received wisdom about the Black Pig's Dyke was very vague, actually. Um, we was mentioned in college. Nobody was able to put a function on it. Uh, some people said it was a roadway. Others said it was a boundary. Nobody had any real idea of the date. So when I went to Monaghan, I was the curator of the county museum there first of the county museums, actually. Um, getting to know the archaeology of the county and uh, talking to colleagues like John Waddell, who's a, an old friend, um, we identified the dike as special to the county. It's not unique to the county. It's one of the best stretches of one of these linear earthworks in any county, really. So we thought we would have a, have a look at it and see can we find out more about it. And we made an application for funding and got a license and we did a small stretch of it right across the width of it put in a trench of about 32 meters i think about two meters wide we widened that out in some areas so a small sample the idea being um, a quick snip to see i mean there's 10 km of it in the area this was one little sample so we hoped to find things like wood and artefacts. We got neither. And we were disappointed with not getting the wood in particular because there were accounts of wooden timbers being dug out by farmers in the 19th century. And if we got wood, we would have been able to get quite precise dates through the dendrochronology process. But what we did find in the third week, as we were really you know, look at running out of uh, hope. What we did find was um, that not only was this a double banked and double ditched earthwork, but running parallel and just to the north, there was a palisade of timber, of oak timbers, which were in a bedding trench that was a metre deep. So quite a substantial bedding trench, obviously to take posts, which we reckoned were about maybe nearly three metres high. Quite substantial post. The bedding trench was also about 90 cm wide. So you, well, you weren't just slotting it in the ground. It was a big affair. But remarkably, it had been burned totally. And all we got was charcoal, but lots of charcoal. And about a mile away, field walking one evening, we came across an accidental exposure. We sampled that, more charcoal. We were looking at exactly the same thing. Uh, and now we know that this feature from GPS or um, ground from geophys work that Colleen carried out with colleagues. We know that this feature, this palisade, is present in other stretches of the earthwork that haven't been excavated. So we sent those char char charcoal samples off. I think we went to Queens and we went to Groningen in the Netherlands with help from Jan Lanting. And we got dates from that. So we were able, for instance, to disprove one particular theory, which I learned in university, 
which was that this was an earthen version of a Roman wall. That this was something the Irish copied from perhaps raiding Britain or whatever. And now we know that the Hadrian's Wall was about 120 AD when it started, I think. And this was much earlier. This, we got very broad dates. They're much better dates now because of resampling and all of that. But we, we reckoned around 500 to, to, to 0 BC, shall we say, very broad dates. So we got some good information out of it, but we weren't able to tie the dates down any tighter onto the recent work. Surely, in recent years, uh, a new appraisal of the Black Pig's Dyke has been carried out. Um, who's been involved in that? What's the kind of genesis of that project? Well, I suppose the, the genesis of it um, went back to the consultations that we had for the various heritage plans locally. You know, so those are the county heritage plans that the county councils do in consultation with local communities and all the various stakeholders. And um, the Black Pig's Dyke had come out a number of times as being, you know, very significant, one of the most significant archaeological features in the county. And I suppose the other one would have been Dromural, you know, the Bronze Age uh, rock art site down near Inneskeen, so and maybe Mully Ash, um, Cairn. So those are the kind of the big features that were coming out. And I was finding it difficult to find a way to get some work done to explore further the significance of the monument. And I knew about Aidan's excavation in um, 1982. And of course, I discovered that we owned a section, that the council owned a section of it as well, which I had been completely unaware of. And it kind of got lost, you know, in the various, you know, institutional knowledge of the council as well. You know, we had to go and pile papers to find, well, did we own a bit? And when did we buy it? And who did we buy it from? And all of that kind of thing. But so, I, I was trying to make the project bigger and more significant. And one day it dawned on me that we should work together, that obviously there's sometimes there's more in the collaboration than there is in, in working individually. So um, I just got in touch with my heritage officer colleagues. And uh, so a number of us came together, um, Aurus Common and Cavan and Leitrim and Longford heritage offices. And we put together a joint application into the Heritage Council to look to see could we sort of start to identify what was known about these earthworks, map them more fully and get a better landscape understanding of them right across our different jurisdictions. And, um, and that's where Colleen and Kilkenny Archaeology came on board. We also had Dr. Steve Davis from UCD and Dr. Mary Lenan from NUI Maynooth. So we got a really great partnership going there with the council funding, the Heritage Council funding and these really fantastic experts. And that was about 2014. And that really, I think, you know, gave us all a great sense of confidence that suddenly we realised there was more to find out, you know, that it was in the discovery of, of walking with Colleen and um, his team along the stretches. You know, we had great exciting times, you know, doing all sorts of investigations, walking our different sections in the different counties and re really getting to grips with the fact that we knew a li little about it, but there was so much more to know and there's such depth in this. So that's kind of where it started. And we kept going for a number of years. And, um, and I suppose we published various regional reports. We built a website as well, blackpigsdyke.ie, where we showed the different um, mapping for all the different counties. We tried to come up with various theories <laughs> about... Um, 
the black pigsty and as you know archaeology is the gift that keeps on giving in that respect you know there's there's no harm in changing your mind when you get new information that's one of the reasons why I love archaeology um and the whole idea about the environmental change I think really interested us in that when you think about the landscape even in the iron age or even now that we know it's probably the sections that are bronze age think about that landscape Obviously, the geology is set down. We have a wooded, scrubby, shrubby landscape, you know, with kind of different types of tree species. And then within that, this huge environmental intervention is built, which must be visible for miles around. Huge construction for whatever reason. You know, we weren't we were we were looking at all these theories, obviously, and we're still looking at them as to why and who built it. But just even in your mind to get an idea of them, as Colleen says, the monumentality of it, how visually striking it must have been to see this thing snaking along the fringes of the drumlands between lakes, up and over and round and circular with a massive palisade. And then to think of it on fire. You know, what was being responded to? what environmental changes are being responded to by that very action or what acts in society were they responding to, what was happening. It's a really fascinating story. Um, and then, of course, Colleen and I chatted one day and thought this is a really br brilliant story. And we decided um, that we tried to find funding for an archaeological monograph so that this could be a springboard for more research so that this isn't the end of the story. But this is another beginning, a fresh beginning to encourage more archaeological research in our area, more scholarly research and more interpretation, analysis, et cetera, et cetera, and protection, of course, of the monument. So that's kind of what happened. That's fantastic. And what did this um, recent phase of investigation, what was involved in that? Was it geophysics? Was there excavation involved too? Well, I'll start a little bit on that, but um, Colin can fill in more. Well, we didn't do any excavations more recently. We did uh, geophys and we looked at some, I think some, we had a little bit of LIDAR as well, maybe for some areas, but it was mainly geophys in some areas that we did. Um, but even the mapping in itself and the walking of the monument and the measuring of the monument really brought up a lot of information. So we haven't done any invasive um surveys at all. We did do a little bit of optically stimulated luminescence. Is that right, Colleen? Yeah, we, we didn't do any excavations on the, the um, Monaghan section of, of the Black Pig site. Uh, instead, what we did there was we re-analyzed Aidan's excavation archive and then we redated an awful lot of his charcoal samples that have been, luckily for us, that have been um, stored away in the Monaghan County Museum. That, that, so that's how we approached the Monaghan section. But we did do excavations across two of the other stretches of, of, of the dike, one in County Leitrim, the Warden Ditch, and one on the Doom Claw in County Longford. Now, the, the Leitrim one turned out to be a bit problematical because the, unfortunately the section that we picked had been trashed uh, some years ago but um, unbeknownst to us so that, that didn't give us very much but the section that we excavated 
on the Dune Claw was very, very interesting because it produced the same sort of evidence as Aidan had found across the Monaghan Dyke in that year. They had a, a great timber palisade which augmented the earthworks themselves and we got that radiocarbon dated and, and lo and behold it was dated to around the same time as the, the palisade that Aidan had found at Ahiray West to the last century or so uh, before the birth of Christ. So um, yeah, and we, we tried a thing called optically stimulated luminescence dating uh, on the Dune Claw. Yeah, effectively it is, it's been used a few, a few times in Ireland, but to date um, Marion Dowd has used it and we, we used it on some Mesolithic sites down in County Wexford. Um, it actually it worked quite well there, but it's basically what it dates is the last time that soil was exposed to sunlight. And so, if you imagine you're you've got your shovel and you're digging, you're 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 digging into the ground and you throw that soil onto a bank to form a bank. Uh, well, there's all these little quartz grains in that lump of soil. And as they are exposed to the sunlight, they have all these little internal clocks, would you believe? And um, those clocks go back to zero once the quartz grains are exposed to sunlight. And you can work out, the scientists can work out from that then how and when that actually occurred. So um, it's very, very effective for dating earthworks because the problem with dating earthworks in particular is that generally there's nothing in them that can be definitely ascribed to the period of, of construction. So radiocarbon dating can have limitations in, in that regard. Now, luckily enough, at Ahre West, that, that wasn't the case. But um, often when you dig a section through an earthwork, it's very, very difficult to date them. So if you can date the actual period of construction using optically stimulated luminescence, dating um, can, can be very effective. Now, in this particular case, we tried it at, uh, in County Leitrim and, we, and we, tried, we tried it on the Dune Claw in County Longford as well, but unfortunately, you know, Patrick Kavanagh's poem about the stony grey soil of that part of the world, well, he is talking about County Monon, but it, that was a big problem for the, the scientists the optically stimulated luminescence bottoms who, who came over and um, it, uh, it just, it didn't work. It came, we got dates that were, that, uh, yeah, I think they were about 20,000 years ago or something. So either we have a 20,000 year old monument, which we definitely do not have, or um, there was something up with, with the dating. It's a, probably actually dating the, the glacial activity of, of the area. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's not, it's something that could be tried again, maybe uh, down the line, but, um, but we relied on radiocarbon dating to be then for the chronology of, of the monument. And, and that, that proved to be much more effective. Um, what is the uh, chronology of the monument? Uh, what, what do we know about kind of the main events, if you like? 
Yeah, I mean, that that proved to be very, very interesting. When Aidan did his excavation back in 1982, he was able to date some of the oak charcoal from the Palisade, um, and he got one or two other dates, I think, as well, from, from the bank. So at that time, radiocarbon dating hadn't advanced to the extent that it, it, the technology that we have now is it very can give you very, very precise dates and you can date very, very small samples that, that have a, a very low own life um, so that the age of the samples can, can be related as close as possible to the, the phase of construction. So um, what we did was we redated then eight samples, eight charcoal samples that um, had come from the excavation. And the big surprise was that the dating proves that the monument was an awful, originated an awful lot uh, further back in, in time than, than we had ever really imagined. And, and uh, it goes back right back to the middle part of the Bronze Age, about 1500 BC or so. So the primary first phase of linear earthwork construction dates to the, the Middle Bronze Age. Um, and there's that's a period of time in County Monaghan and in that part of the world that seems to have, where an awful lot of activity seems to have been going on. I mean, there's some fabulous Bronze Age gold in the National Museum, the, the Tadavnet discs with their, their thought to be uh, related to the Sun cult at that time and um, Shirley mentions the primordial rock art so again that probably comes from uh, around this, the same time so an awful lot of activity happening in the landscape in Monaghan uh, at that time. Then around 200 BC then you have the main Iron Age artworks that are, are constructed that's the double bank and the double ditch and they incorporate the Bronze Age linear artwork and that's when it's major period of construction and what the radiocarbon dates then we did this Bayesian analysis of, of the dates which can give you a very precise chronology and this was done by Dr Fiona Petchy from the um, University of Waikato in New Zealand and she was able to show from the dates that the Great Oak Palisade was actually built maybe 50 to 100 years after the main earthworks were, were built. So you've got three definite, very separate phases of construction. So 1500 BC for the first Bronze Age phase, and then about 200 BC for the main earthworks, and then approximately 100 BC for the, the Palisade itself. So um, that's been very, very useful for giving us an idea and that allows us to put the, the monument into a good context as well, which has been very, very useful. Absolutely. And sure, with the results of that, Shirley, um, you know, being a Monaghan local and such, has that changed the way that you look at this great Monaghan monument? Now that you know the dates from it and, and you've got a bit of a, you see it in higher definition, if you like. Yeah, I think when we... Um... Well, it was always called an Iron Age monument, but then when those Bronze Age dates came up, I think uh, I think we kind of double checked ourselves a bit. Um, and Colin agree with that. We were kind of 
amazed nearly, you know, that it was going so far back. And it's astonishing to think that, and a sensible thing actually to think about how people reuse landscapes, of course. So that already that there had been something existing and then people further built on that. So the society in that continuity of societies reused the monument, you know, um, it had they obviously discussed it in some way and said we reuse this and we'll 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 um emphasize the ditches and we'll um make it more um obvious in the landscape for whatever reason and um certainly the sections that we find the bronze age um dates for and like Colleen has talked to us quite um Colleen said to me at one stage that I couldn't think about the decisions that people were making then in the context of my 20th century brain that they had to put myself into a kind of an Iron Age brain set or, you know, even previous and try to think about what they were responding to or why they were making these decisions. Because it looks like, obviously, if you couldn't really defend it, you know, even if it was a defensible structure. It would take so many people to do that. And that its placement on the hills wouldn't necessarily achieve that function either. So, you know, why would you spend such community effort and such environmental resources in fact to actually you know create such a change in the landscape so that's what really fascinated me um and other people in the heritage forum for example and when we keep bringing forward this new information all the time and but it's that rich time depth isn't it because you're getting further and further back and closer and closer in fact to those you know ice age periods or that deposition of the drumlins and in the area around Scott's house it's known for its um, cross-ribbed moraines and it's actually the global center for um, uh, uh, formations where you can see the two different directions of ice flow in the landscape so you can see that from above as as the crow flies you can see that the ice um, it's two different ice sheets going in two different directions which um which is amazing to think that Scott's House is the global centre for this phenomena. And now, <clears throat> when you think about inscribing this other piece of massive landscape art, you know what I mean, on the landscape as well, and that it goes back so far to the Bronze Age, I, I think it really brings forth the significance of it, that continuity of settlement, continuity of use, and that these people weren't invisible at all. You know, they were very active. They were responding to something. And um, yeah, it's extremely interesting. And I know my colleagues in the local authority are extremely interested in it and are finding it very fascinating because the more you know, the less we know. It's one of those types of things, isn't it? That That's a perfect encapsulation of archaeology itself. The more we know, the less we know. <laughs> like It always seems like we just end up with more questions, the more interesting questions that you have at the start. But that, that's the process. That's really well said. And... You know, looking at a kind of monument like that, you know, your brain naturally starts to leap to things like territorial kind of expression, kingdoms, for want of a better word. Is that the right way we should be thinking about a monument like this, do you think? Or or is there just no knowing why they would do a big monument like that? Yeah, and that, that sort of thinking which is heavily influenced, obviously, by the, you know, the Ulster cycle and the, the great vernacular literature of the early medieval and, and, and late medieval period. It's, um, that has been the way, I suppose, people have generally thought about the purpose and the 
function of the, the Blackfix Zika and the other linear artworks that they were primarily built to defend territorial boundaries. They're the boundaries of ancient kingdoms. Um, but like Shirley said, I, I think we need to decouple, firstly, the vernacular literature, medieval literary, literary accounts from the, the actual artworks themselves. I mean, they're much, much older than those tales uh, than the mythology you're talking about, maybe a thousand years or so, in some cases, between those tales and the, the actual artworks themselves. So they mightn't be completely separated, but um, I, I think you need to put them to, to one side just uh, and, and look at them from an archaeological point of view and try and figure out how would they actually work as territorial boundaries. If you were to parachute back into the Iron Age and you wanted to control your the, the king of Monaghan, um, or the, or the Queen. Shirley, Shirley's the Queen of Monaghan already, so... <laughs> I don't think so, but... <laughs> <laughs> and if you wanted to defend your boundary, I mean, you know, first of all, you're talking of 10 kilometres long earthwork, which is what survives today anyway, or what we know of. Could have been a, a lot longer originally. Uh, actually, peopling that with defenders, with soldiers and, and lookouts and, and so forth. I mean, you're talking thousands and thousands of, of individuals. So it just doesn't really stack up as a territorial boundary. And then there's the like the imaginal lines where the, the Germans were able to just go around the around the edge of it. I mean, it's the same thing here as well. So it's uh, I don't know if that these could have been some sort of vast territorial boundaries. Um, it's very difficult when you actually hone in on it to, to make that, that argument. Um, and if you look, I think you, I think we need to look at the at it from the kind of resources that were put into the construction of, of the monuments themselves. And if you look look at it from that angle. We've roughly estimated that the Monaghan dike itself would have, would have taken maybe half a million person days to construct. Then you're talking that's, you know, 250 people working for 10 years, 365 days a year. So it's a massive undertaking itself. Look at the Palisade in particular. The Palisade would have we reckon if it continues along the full length of, of the dike, it would have required about 30,000 oak trees to be felled to, to construct it. So, I mean, that's a, an entire forest. The environmental impact and the strain that the construction of the dike uh, had on contemporary society must have been absolutely enormous. And it's not just the dikes that are being constructed at this time as well. I mean, look at what's happening at Navan Fort, at Tara, at Dunalinga. It's all happening around the same time, first and second century BC. 
Uh, you've got these vast timber structures that are being built, timber temples, timber settlements of, the, up on, the, on the Great Royal sites. You have things like the, the massive timber toher, like uh, that was built at Carley, dated 150 BC. And then things that there's the, the Darcy, which is constructed around the same time as well. Absolute, they're all mega structures. They are monumental structures in their own right. And just the, the amount of resources, of human resources, of environmental resources that went into the construction of all of this stuff within a very short period of time, it must have had an enormous impact on, uh, on everyday life. And, um, and if you look at some of the pollen evidence and, and then the archaeological evidence as well for the, the period immediately following all of this, so say the first century AD, there's a total collapse in everything. We've got woodland regeneration in the in the pollen record, with very, very few archaeological sites from that period. Now they are emerging as time goes by, there's more and more of it, but you can only point to maybe a dozen or so good solid uh, evidence of um, settlements for, for that period. So it looks like there's a pretty dramatic population collapse after all of this monumental construction is, is happening in, in the landscape. And then you know, look at what's happening with the bog bodies that you can go and see in the National Museum. I mean, a lot of the, these people were deliberately mutilated. Um, it's pretty certain that a lot of them were deliberate human sacrifices. Connie Cavan man and dates from this period as well. And then look at all the things like the, the votive offerings that are being placed in generally watery places like uh, bogs, rivers, lakes, very, very fine Latin metalwork is, is being deliberately deposited into, into these places. So something really, really extraordinary is, is, is happening at, at this time. And it's trying to figure out exactly what what is it that's triggered all of this? Is it, is it something that occurred very, very quickly because of a single event? It has been suggested that there, there was a volcanic event in 207 BC, which might have created a, a dust veil that led to um, serious uh, environmental climatic change, which you know, would have caused crop failures, famine, that, 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 that kind of thing. Um, but there's other, there's been more recent work done on that, which suggests that that mightn't have been quite as a significant event as um, heretofore thought. So, but there's something, something very, very peculiar is, is happening at, at that time. And it's trying to figure it out, I suppose, that uh, what, what was it that, that Maybe is 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 the is the next one of the, the next challenges. Well, I mean, it's it, it's interesting to think about that. Those kind of big societal shifts. I mean, I often think of 
you know, if you think of the Great Irish Famine, the cause of that, the potato blight that, that did such devastation and, and changed society utterly in so many ways, I wonder, you know, what kind of archaeological signature, if you fast forward 2,000 years, what kind of signature would something like the blight have? It might be something that we can't see and we're looking for bigger things like volcanic eruptions and things like that. And of course, the blight had its own particular circumstances, monoculture crops and, and, and such. But you don't know, there could be something like that or disease, like we're living through a pandemic right now, you know, that might be hard to see archaeologically, but we're seeing the societal mm. uh, symptoms. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting because you think even about the migration of people and the different diseases even that, you know, various migrations of people might bring. And who knows whether they were trying to even, you know, manage that kind of scenario in some way. But I think because and then because that's we're in that mindset at the moment, obviously, about viruses and things. But I think, though, the environmental change, I think that there's something in that because it seems like a a landscape level response to something so trying to control something quite major and and to you know I think when we were exploring with Siobhan MacDonald the artist um in her responses to the archaeological results we were thinking about you know the volcano that um Colleen mentioned the volcanic eruption and I know that there's questions now over how what big of an impact that had but if there was a dramatic cooling in temperatures and people weren't sufficiently up to speed enough to respond to that from an agricultural practice point of view or um, maybe, I don't know, rainfall or whatever changes. And they were already reaching to the sky and to, the, you know, to worship of the sun, to respond to things. All of these fires that were being set off, you know, what message were they trying to send? Who were they trying to communicate with? Um, or what changes were they trying to make in the land with the, that they were reflecting from somewhere else? Like, I think that's really what's fascinating. I th or was it purely an environmental collapse driven by themselves? You know, that they did deforest to make these huge um, constructions, that they did break earth on such a great scale, maybe causing some sort of, you know, sediment running into rivers, Maybe they caused some sort of an issue with, you know, fish stocks, like, you know, who knows, locally, you know, with local food supplies and, you know, like felling massive oak forests, like that destroys more than the oak trees itself. That destroys ecosystems, you know, that are, that that have um, local implications for, you know, maybe other systems, maybe the pastures that they were using or whatever, or the movement of, la of um, livestock or whatever. So. You know, it, to my mind at the moment, when we're thinking now about massive environmental change and the climate crisis and the bio, biodiversity crisis that we're in, and you look at what they did at that time with scarce resources, no machinery, that they, they, they took away themselves from managing, from whatever farming that they were doing to build this. You know, it, you can almost say that it was a bit of an act of madness looking at it now. Like, why would you do that? Why would you be so um, greedy? Why would you want such a status? Why would you want to be so dominant? Um, and without thinking about the consequences. Uh, and that's what I think is really fascinating about it. No, it is really fascinating. I mean, and that's it. And we always bring a bit of ourselves to these kind of 
interpretations yeah. of monuments. And as you said earlier, you know, a kind of 20th and 21st century mindsets, looking back at the time, you know, it, it's... You do see in, in other cultures, I think uh, the, the Aztec, I'm not an expert on this by any means, so I might be totally wrong, but I believe that in the latter years of the Aztec, just before um, the kind of the conquistadors rolled in, they were already constructing ever grander temples and things like that, because as a society, they were under enormous pressure internally through a, a variety of different things. And when the Spanish came, that got heightened even more. So sometimes societies double down on something that whether it's trying to protect themselves or whether it's as you say trying to appease the gods i think there's two really interesting questions for me that jump out about uh the black pig's diet there's the question uh, that we've discussed there about why was it built and the equally interesting question for me is why was it burned you know, was that an act of war, or or could it have actually been uh, an act of sacrifice, or even mm. something positive? Maybe there was a particularly powerful ruler of Ulster that says, "I don't need this boundary anymore. I've exceeded my boundaries so much. I don't need a fallback. You know, I burnt the bridges behind me, kind of thing." It's an interesting question too, isn't it? And and do we have a sort of date on that destruction phase, as far as we know? We do indeed. Yeah. Um, luckily, we. When, when Aidan excavated, he, as well as finding the charred stumps of the great oak palisade in his excavation, um, which allows us to kind of reconstruct the, the form of the palisade, so we reckon it stood about three metres high, which is really, really impressive. Um, but as well as that, he, he was in the charcoal samples, we were able to the analysis of those by Susan Lyons actually allowed us to figure out that the, when it was being burnt, um, this brushwood had been placed against the palisade, and that had burnt along with the palisade itself, and some of that had trickled down into the palisade post holes. And um, so the, the brushwood, then we were able to date that very quite quite precisely to the first century. BC, and that then gives us the, the date of the destruction of it. So um, it's, which is very, very useful. But the um, the title of the book, Materializing Power, feeds into that whole question of what was the purpose of these and why would the palisade have been burnt and why was it built in the first place and uh, that kind of thing. And just getting back to what I, what I was talking about earlier about the monumentality of the dike and the amount of resources that it requires in its construction. And, and this isn't something that's just happening in Monaghan. This is, seems to have been happening with dike construction and destruction throughout that entire region. So we found on the Dune Claw the exact same sequence where you've got the construction of the earthen earthworks. There's a palisade and it burnt. And the same thing on the Darcy as well, the Chris Lynn's excavations, the exact same scenario has unfolded there as well. So I think we, we need to look at these monuments as being symbolic of the power of whoever it was, the, presumably their elites who, who had these things built in the first place. And then why were they destroyed? I mean, it's, it really is, a, it's, a, it's a puzzle. To, to even 
go about you know burning 10 kilometers of an oak palisade in itself is an enormous undertaking. I mean, if you can imagine that they put brushwood all along the the full length of it and um, set fire to it, and I presume they would have prayed that it didn't rain that evening. And <laughs> so, uh, you know, even that in itself is an absolutely enormous undertaking. Now, there's been a number of excavations and, and sightings of the burnt palisade along the length of the dike in, in Monaghan and every single one of them is heavily burnt, really, really heavily burnt right down to the base of the stumps of the posts and it's, um, and as I say, the same thing, pretty much any linear artwork that's been excavated, you have that same thing. So it's uh, very, very interesting and I, I think we need to look at these things as other monuments that are materializing the power of the people who who actually had them built i mean they're basically saying look i can get 500 people to work for 10 years ex to excavate the ditches and build the banks and i can get people to go in and fell a forest for me and i so they're, they're symbolic of these these people and um, and if you look one of the things we've done in the book is we've looked at these sites in uh, linear artworks in the UK as well and we've got a very very similar scenario occurring over there at the same time first and second century BC and there's places like Stanwyck and Bagendon where you've got very very similar scenario there of uh, great constructions of, of dikes um, timber palisades and in that part of the world that they are associated with these vast sprawling settlements called territorial opida and one of the questions that I've raised in the book is you know could we be looking at a, a similar scenario here in, in Ireland that the dikes are basically part of these sprawling settlements that in some cases, they can go on for miles and miles and miles, and they're dispersed dwellings. There are lots of open areas of the land, of farm land. Um, you've got clusters then of you know ritual burial activities, and basically, what the dikes do is they kind of tie the whole thing together. They don't. They're they're not necessarily acting as boundaries or defences for these. But certainly in the UK, France, Germany, you've got exactly the same thing where the, these dikes are kind of, to us, they look like they're almost haphazardly sort of loosely defining these great big sprawling settlements. Now, the problem in an Irish scenario is that we don't have very much archaeological evidence for the kind of settlements and dwellings and that kind of thing that, that tends to occur uh, at, at the territorial Opida sites in, in the UK and um, France and Germany and so forth but that's probably because it's just it's very very ephemeral sort of archaeology unenclosed dwellings scatters of pits and um, and funnily enough where things like motorways have been built in the environs of some of these big dikes like the Rat Duff Dike down in, in County Kilkenny for instance motorways went right through the, the core area Surrounded that 
on either side of that, that particular dike. And, um, and lo and behold, that's exactly the kind of archaeology that did turn up. You know, there was lots of little areas, you know, scattered settlements, industrial activity, uh, some ring ditches, that, that kind of thing. And it's all, again, you could make an argument, and you know, we've done so in the book, that that's what you're looking at there is one of these great big dispersed settlements that uh, are referred to as, as territorial opida. Um, and some other archaeologists have argued that Tara, Lunalinga, the royal sites, are actually also uh, have aspects of, the, of these territorial opida um, and that closely compare with, with um, what's happening at those places and that for the power scapes as they're termed. So you've got Again, that whole idea of materialising power, which is, I think, that's how we need to look at, at the dikes. And hopefully in the future, the, there'll be a little bit more research done on, uh, on this aspect, really important aspect of, of our archaeology. Absolutely. It, it's absolutely fascinating. And you get the real sense that it, it's a door opening into something that's always kind of been a you know people have been long aware of these monuments they are such such big ones but to open the door into asking serious questions like this and beginning to get those first kind of tentative answers that lead to more questions I think is brilliant so Aidan at a time now when the borders of Ulster are fairly prevalent in the news again what can this project tell us about these monumental earthworks? You know, is this all part of the kind of uh, an earlier boundary of, of Ulster as, as such, or how does it fit in with today's story? It's, it's often been looked on as a border. Um, it's a very, it, it happens to be that some of the best stretches are in places like Donegal, Monaghan, and Armagh. But People forget that there are earthworks of exactly similar nature down here where I live in Westmeath, in Longford, and in Cork. Some of them are even, I believe the one in Cork is even bigger. So this, these, this linear earthwork feature, they may have been tribal boundaries for all we know. Uh, Colleen has written very interestingly in the book about the purpose of the dike. He doesn't think it was a defense. He thinks that it was a prestige project um, which is probably the way I would feel now, even though when I first wrote up the site and published preliminary versions, I really was thinking defensively, or of defence. Um, in the 19th century, antiquarians looked at the earthwork, looked at the traditions and the myths associated with the Ulster cycle of stories and all of that, and came to a conclusion uh, by looking at a bit of archaeology on the ground, by taking the mythology into account and taking the folklore into account, came to a conclusion that the Black Peaks Dyke was a cross-country earthwork in South Ulster and that it was contemporary with each other because the different stretches don't necessarily have to be contemporary with each other. But they did conclude that and that stuck as an idea. And um, when I published the little preliminary report I got a lot of interest from loyalist opinion in Northern Ireland. And I had um, books on Ulster's heritage quoting my dig, uh, small and all as it was, as evidence of an ancient Ulster boundary. There's no evidence whatever that it was an ancient Ulster boundary. It is some form of boundary or landscape monument. It doesn't have to do with ancient Ulster. 
It, we, we just don't know those questions yet, or those answers yet. There's a lot of it there on the ground. A little bit more excavation would probably answer some of those questions. Um, but it's always been kind of uh, imagined as an ancient border without any real evidence for it. Without any evidence for it, actually. Um, and borders, are, of course, as you say, borders are back in in, in, in the discussion. But um, it's not just the only border that's kind of a politically contentious one. There's a border, I remember BBC actually looked at this topic on the site and they were looking at borders like the Palestine-Israeli one and other contentious borders which uh, have a role in conflict. Um, so it, 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 the, the discussion around the dike has a broader context, okay? And um, when we looked at it, you know, we were conscious of these different uh, interpretations of it. But we were there as, as you say, uh, surgically looking at a little piece from an archaeological standpoint. We weren't there to make political judgments. In any event, we didn't get the evidence to make any political judgments. I see, I see. It's very interesting indeed. And um, I suppose that's it. I mean, we always bring ourselves into the interpretation a little, don't we, when it comes to archaeology? And, and I think people yeah. who want to see it as a border, there's enough meat there, there's enough plausibility so on to, to make a meal of that. Um, so that that's a very interesting aspect of it, and it really is. And I think, you know, it is... Uh, what I really like about this project as well, you know, even from the outset, that sometimes you have this, don't you, that you have these big monuments and they loom so large and everyone's like, oh, that's what that is. You know, there's this kind of common understanding. And I think it takes archaeology really to go, well, is it really this accepted belief or is it something else? Is it something different? And I think the project between your excavations back in 1982, uh, the recent and this whole kind of rethinking the site as part of this publication I think it's a really good exercise and we can apply that not just to large boundary earthworks, uh, but also to a number of other sites where we've always been very much kind of... Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely, because, you know, if there had been no excavation, a huge research project could have been done anyway, uh, using the new techniques. Um, and it would have found, it would have answered a lot of questions, but the dig was you know concrete evidence as well so you're right that it it has that potential and in terms of the future for the black pig stake and the future of this sort of project is there anything that you'd like to see what would you like to see kind of happen next now that the publication is out and it's such a terrific publication again i mean it's such an interesting and evocative monument uh, surely are there any stretches that somebody can kind of go and visit today or are the plans in the near future do you think to to make some of this accessible well definitely we want to make the section of Aharay west accessible um, well, the council did buy it, you know, in 1982. There's a 250-metre stretch there that's in our ownership, and it's mm -hmm. a fantastic stretch. I know you've been on it. It's uh, amazing. Neil. Yeah, it's um, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it's so atmospheric, isn't it? Because it's kind of, it's covered in hazel at the moment. Yes. And it kind yeah. of feels like you're a little bit transported back kind of mentally in your mind because it looks so different to the rest of the landscape around it it's really beautiful that stretch actually because it has a beautiful sort of a hazel woodland on it and 
you know, the banks of, or the ditches are really quite steep there and there's water trickling and ferns and there's lovely spring flowers there, you know, and the birds are singing. So it's a really beautiful stretch. And um, but we are hoping to sort of um, get obviously a conservation plan done for that area before we look at how to make it more accessible. Um, obviously, we do hold walks and talks there already. Um, during Heritage Week and at other times. So we've been bringing people there quite a bit on different um, tours. So Aidan has spoke there, stood there with his microphone in the middle of the woodland, describing the dig and all of that for several times. And um, But we do want to make that accessible, obviously in a very sensitive way that we're not obviously dest- destroying the monument, but in a way that people can see the scale of it. Um, and obviously from an, a larger landscape perspective, you know, there's more that we need to think about, about how do we point people to other sections, to the more continuous sections that go through other people's land, even if we were walking on the local roads that you would see it when you looked, you know, over a hedge or whatever, that you'd know that was the section. And then, of course, there's the virtual means of making things accessible now as well. So we did construct a website a good few years ago, but we didn't have as much information about the sites then as we do now. Um, so that would be a little bit out of date with the m- most recent theories, but there's information there on the blackpigsdyke.ie website. And then obviously this fantastic book, I would highly recommend it to people because um, what Colleen and Aidan have done is that they have brought together all the really, the scientific, the scholarly, the folklore, you know, the legends, all of that sort of um, intangible aspects of the heritage with the tangible results that they've been finding out since 1982 about the site and put that in a much broader kind of, I hate to say the word context, but we'll say the word context, (laughs) environmental space, shall we say, looking at other um, linear earthworks, which nearly emphasises how even more significant this one is in Monaghan anyway, to my mind, um, and how much more we need to find about the overall landscape that Colleen's talking about there, these opida, and think, well, gosh, like, I mean, if that was there, then what else are we looking at in the landscape? And I know we found on the geophys on either side of the Ahare West, like these um, evidences of settlement. But then you start looking at the whole area and think, well, what, what's there? What are we missing? We must be missing something else as well. And so we would love to bring that forward. So that's what I'm saying. This book is very much a springboard to get other people interested in Monaghan's archaeological past and before it was Monaghan, of course, and our landscape and what more there is to learn about it. And um, I think that's what's really good about this book. It sets out what we know, what we don't know. So I want to appeal to all the archaeologists out there and all the funding bodies and the RIA and the Archaeological Excavation Funds and everything that we will be coming to you um, in the next uh, number of years to try to find out more about this landscape. Well, that's fantastic to hear, you know, and I've got to say as well, the book is so beautifully illustrated. I think it gives you a real sense, not just the amazing reconstruction drawings, which well, by who they're they're absolutely fantastic. The reconstruction drawings. Oh, Philip Armstrong. He's he, yeah, oh, they're fantastic. Lovely. He's done amazing. pictures. He's done the illustrations for us for Monaghan before for other ecologic or ecclesiastical sites and that. Yeah. But this is a real gem. Oh, and he worked so... with Colleen Nate. And this is topographically correct. It's Ahare West. That's incredible. And, I mean. 
it, the 3D imagery of this when he was doing it, mm-hmm. it's phenomenal. I mean, such work went into that. Yeah. Um, it's a fantastic drawing, yeah. I, it's beautiful, but all the way through the publication as well, it's just really nicely designed. And I think, you know, whether you're an archaeologist or whether you're somebody just interested in the history of the, the locality as well, I think you get a lot out of it. I think it's really nicely balanced between the different aspects of the pure archaeology end of things and the folklore end of things and all of that. You get a really nice sense of, you know, the monumentality. It's a word that we keep returning to in this chat. And this does a great job, I think, of introducing people to that. I think it's wonderful. I want to thank you so very much um, for taking the time to talk to us today. And congratulations once again on this. It's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to put links to everything we've talked about there in the show notes as well, so people can find the website and they can find the, the Wordwell publication. Um, and otherwise, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd really like to thank Colleen, Shirley and Aidan for all of the time and insights there. I thought it was really fascinating. And once again, I really strongly want to recommend beautifully illustrated materializing power the archaeology of the black pig state by wordwell books it's not only beautifully illustrated but it gives a really fresh perspective on these enigmatic monumental landscape features that quite often have been sadly overlooked i think so it's fantastic to see this project they've also got a website as well as shirley said and there'll be links on our website at abataheritage.ie As you're listening to this, I hope our new membership service called Tour will now be open for people to come and join us. This membership service will bring you all the news, information and practical advice for great places to go and see around Ireland. It basically incorporates an awful lot of the last two guidebooks that I've written for the Wild Atlantic Way Islands Agencies, but we've also got Northern Ireland, Dublin and Islands Hidden Heartlands included as well. We're adding more and more sites all the time. As well as uh, information on individual sites, you can also find itineraries. So you can have a great day out around the Causeway Coast or Dingle Peninsula, places like that. And we've got online courses on Irish archaeology or different aspects of Irish heritage. You can also find virtual tours. We're going to have opportunities for meetups and tours in person as well, as soon as it's safe to do so. And you'll find lots and lots of unique content on there as well. So I really hope that you'll consider joining us. You can find us at tua.ie. That's T-U-A-T-H-A dot I-E. I want to thank you for joining us again today. We've got more great episodes of Amplify Archaeology lined up. Can't wait to share them with you. So please do make sure that you subscribe. And if you have a moment, if you're on Apple Podcasts in particular, please do leave us a review. If you've enjoyed the episode, it does help us to be found. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.